Welcome to the Dream Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Hey everybody, happy Easter. Hope you guys are having a great day. Uh, this is a unique Easter to say the least. Um, usually around this time, um, at least for the past seven years, um, if not longer for me, really my whole life I grew up in church, but uh, Easter is when the floodgates open up, everybody shows up to church, everybody's dressed in their best attire, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but this year is really different. Um, it's very unique. I don't know of a time in at least anywhere near recent history that um, that we've been in that's like this, but let alone an Easter that's been like this. And, um, and so I want to encourage you, before we get into the message, as you're watching this at home with family and uh, maybe friends or whoever you're around, uh, I want to encourage you guys to take advantage of what we're in right now. Um, because I said this last week, but every single thing that the enemy means to harm us with, um, the Lord turns around and redeems for our good. And so what's going on in the world right now is sickness and disease and death and fear and all that stuff. And the Lord is just taking a tally of every single thing the enemy means to use for our harm and is currently in the process, I believe, of redeeming all of that. But just think about this for a second Um, before I go in. Bob Jones prophesied that 2020 to 2030 was going to be the age of rest. This was years and years ago. And uh, ironically, the first year of that, 2020, uh, we open up the year with a mandated rest. Now, I'm not saying, as I've said before, the Lord did not send coronavirus, just to be clear. However, he is allowing the children of God, those who are going to be the seed of, I believe, the new creation life that we're regenerating into right now, he's allowing us to go through a season of rest. It says, be still and know that I am God. The only way to know, that's a Hebrew word, yada, which is an intimate knowledge. Be still and know that I am God. The only way to intimately know that he is God is to be still. And, uh, and so I believe right now there's a lot of, especially Christians, who have a, have a hard time being still. I told somebody this the past couple of weeks. Um, I think this was about two weeks ago. But uh, as a pastor, um, on a weekly basis, I don't know if I legitimately take a Sabbath. Now, we have Fridays and Saturdays off here at the church. Um, but most of those, we're running around, we're doing stuff. You know, those are the two days when I'm not at work. So when I'm at home, that's the days I get stuff at home done. And, uh, and I don't know if there's been many uh, legitimate Sabbaths that at least I've taken in a long time. And, uh, and that's, that's really convicting for me. However, we're really in this Sabbath season right now. And the Sabbath wasn't just a day where you sat around and did nothing. Uh, that's what a lot of people like to view it as. But the Sabbath, a lot of scholars will describe this, wasn't just a do-nothing day. It was a, it was a mysterious glimpse once a week of the new heaven and new earth. And so the reason that they rested and they didn't work and they didn't do certain things is because the Lord was teaching them the reality of eternity in that day. And Jesus even modeled something very different. He got a lot of flack because a lot of the miracles and stuff he did was on the Sabbath. He healed a lot of people on the Sabbath. And people didn't like that because he was going what they thought he they thought he was going against the law for the Sabbath, which said, don't do anything. What Jesus 
was actually introducing was what the Sabbath was always intended to be, which is a glimpse of eternity. And in eternity, there is no sickness. In eternity, there is no disease, et cetera, et cetera. So Jesus wasn't going against the Sabbath. He was actually fulfilling the purpose of the Sabbath. And so right now, what we're in is a season of Sabbath. And I believe what the Lord is doing is he's starting to fulfill in us some things that we haven't allowed him to fulfill in us because we refuse to be still just as a society. And so I want to encourage you, take advantage of this time to be still and know that he's God. Spend time with family that you normally wouldn't get. Spend time with the people around you that you normally wouldn't uh, get all this free time to spend time with them. And when we go back to work, we need to find a good middle ground. We don't need to go back to the hustle and bustle and forget everything else in life and never rest. We need to take what we've learned in this season and apply it to the next when we do go back to work and we do go back to normal life. It needs to be that balance. We need to make sure we're resting and taking these Sabbaths. But honestly, at the end of the day, we also need to get back to work too. So um, anyway, I just want to encourage you in that. Take advantage of this season. This isn't something that's brand new. I've been saying this for a while, but uh, I just want to encourage you to do that. Okay, we're going to start out at Genesis 1 today. And uh, and a lot of you are probably sick of me talking about Genesis 1, but there's so much that we need to learn from the book of Genesis, specifically how God created everything in order to understand where things are trending. Um, A lot of the reason we don't know where the earth is going is because we don't know where the earth came from. And so we, you know, have this idea that we're going to escape, God's going to blow up creation, all this stuff, because we see creation as evil. We see creation as against God. So we see the kingdom of heaven and God, this is all review, the kingdom of heaven and God is good, and the earth is the devil's and it's all bad. And that's just not the case. When God created creation, he created it good. And so creation is good. Just because evil entered the picture does not make creation evil. It makes creation good with the presence of evil. So when Jesus came, he didn't come to deal with creation. He came to deal with evil. And by dealing with evil, it set creation back right again. So uh, I want to remind you of the created order of creation before we talk about Easter. Easter's significance is in the understanding of what the cross and resurrection did for us and the whole of creation. So uh, go with me to Genesis 1. Uh, starting in verse 26, and I'm going to read a few verses. If you've been around at any point over the past, I mean, I guess two and a half years, uh, this is going to sound very familiar, uh, but I'm going to start at verse 26. I'm going to read this, and, uh, and then we'll kind of move through this. So uh, it says this, verse 26, Genesis 1, then God said, let us make a man and a woman in our image to be like us. Let them reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the livestock, over the creatures that creep along the ground, and over the wild animals. So God created a man and a woman and shaped them with his image inside them. In his own beautiful image, he created his masterpiece. Yes, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them in his love, saying, reproduce and be fruitful populate the earth and subdue it. We're going to spend a lot of time there, okay? Uh, He blessed them in his love, saying, reproduce and be fruitful, 
populate the earth and subdue it, reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and every creature that lives on earth. And God said, I give you seed bearing plant, every seed bearing plant growing throughout the earth, vegetables, and every fruit bearing tree with its seed within itself. That's huge. So remember that right there, okay? With its seed within itself, fruit that has seed within it, okay? They will be your food. They will also be food for every animal and bird and every creature that moves on the ground. Every creature with the breath of life, and so it happened. God surveyed all that he had made and said, I love it, for it pleased him greatly. Evening gave way to morning, day six. And then you have the seventh day that follows directly after that the Bible does not say ended, right? It's very interesting. Every single day uh, ends with evening gave way to morning, day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. Day seven does not end like that. We enter into day seven, which is Genesis 2-2. By the seventh day, God completed everything and he rested. And the Bible does not say that that day had an end. So it doesn't say evening gave way to morning and then there was day eight. Uh, And what, what we see in that is that the seventh day was the Sabbath day for the Lord. That's when he rested. In fact, the original translation uh, should probably be closer to the word retired. Um, and you have, this, you have this idea that the Lord completed everything he intended to complete in creation up to day six so that he retired on day seven. It's not that he stopped working on day seven, um, as in he doesn't ever do anything else the rest of time. But what we see is that he, he worked day one through day six, but on day seven, he just stopped and surveyed all that he had made and rested in the goodness of creation, okay? Which is where we get the Sabbath. So Genesis one, God did not subdue the earth. Just to be clear, he tells man, be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth. So if he gives the command to Adam and Eve to subdue the earth, what does that mean? The earth was not subdued yet. So God did not subdue the earth. He told man to subdue the earth and reign over it. It's really interesting. Death was a foreign concept in the garden. If you went up to Adam right after he was created and started talking about the concept of death, he would have looked at you like you were speaking a language he didn't know. Death was a foreign concept in the garden. They were not designed to die. Death was not designed to be present within the garden. It was eternal life with Yahweh in the cool of the day, day in and day out and day in and day out, okay? However, the world outside of the garden was unlike the world within the garden. That's why it needed to be subdued. God's plan for this was to create an image bearer and through his multiplication and fruit, the earth would be subdued. God's plan was to create an image bearer and the one who bore his image was to multiply and be fruitful And through that multiplication would come the subduing of the earth. 
So in the context of pre-fall, so before sin enters the picture, which is Genesis 1 and 2, in that context, Adam would subdue the earth by producing more image bearers. That was the plan. How was Adam going to bring the garden to the whole of the earth? By reproducing the image that he carried, the image of God. Okay, all of this is going to make sense when we get to Jesus. So, uh, subduing the earth was to be effortless. Simply look like God, and that would produce others that look like God. And as you produced others that look like God, their spreading throughout the earth would become what subdued the earth. So, the command to subdue the earth is connected with the command right before it, which is to be fruitful and multiply. So by being fruitful and multiplying, that would produce subduing of the earth, okay? Hopefully you guys are still with me. Let's go to John 12, and, uh, and we're gonna see a little bit of this. Remember, he also talks about uh, fruit that had seed within it. He goes on to say that. Uh, listen to what Jesus teaches right here in John 12, starting at verse uh, 20. Let's start at verse 20. Now there were a number of foreigners from among the nations who were worshipers at the feast. These were probably Greeks, um, if it matters. Okay. They went to Philip, who came from the village of Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, would you take us to see Jesus? We want to see him. So Philip went to find Andrew, and then they both went to inform Jesus. He replied to them, now is the time for the son of man to be glorified. Remember, what is he teaching right here? This is his response to a group of people that want to meet Jesus. Okay, so a group of people, Greeks, come to uh, Philip and then Philip goes to Andrew and both of them go to tell Jesus, hey, there's this group of people, they really want to see you. This is how Jesus responds to them. Now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Let me make this clear. A single grain of wheat will never be more than a single grain of wheat unless it drops into the ground and dies because then it sprouts and produces a great harvest of wheat all because one grain died. The person who loves his life and pampers himself will miss true life, but the one who detaches his life from this world and abandons himself to me will find true life and enjoy it forever. If you want to be my disciple, follow me and you will go where I am going. And if you truly follow me as my disciple, the father will shower his favor upon your life. All right, so this group of people comes and says, we want to meet Jesus. And then Jesus starts teaching them about how one grain of wheat is nothing more than a single grain of wheat unless it's buried in the ground as it dies. But once it's in the ground and goes through death, it produces a harvest of wheat that is so much greater than the single grain of wheat. However, the harvest of wheat that it produces has the same DNA as the first single grain of wheat. What also is really interesting is that once you get a harvest of wheat, that harvest of wheat contains seeds that could then be planted and multiplied as much as you want to multiply and plant. So think about this. One grain of wheat 
has so much power in it, yet it is so insignificant. If you're just holding a grain of wheat, it means absolutely nothing. However, there's so much power in that grain of wheat that it could be planted into the ground and its death produces not just another harvest, another harvest with other seeds of the same kind within the harvest. So his plan to transform the globe was not to try to transform the globe on his own. His plan to transform the globe was to become the seed of an image bearer that when he went through death and then resurrection, it would give birth to not just a bunch of people who believed in him because he was resurrected, but a bunch of people who believed in him because he was resurrected and also had the seeds within them that as they went through death and resurrection, it would give birth to another group of people. So that's how 2,000 years after the death of Jesus, we're still doing this today on a totally different continent in a totally different way. How are we doing this? Because over time, a group of people were buried, gave birth to harvest, buried, gave birth to harvest, buried, gave birth to harvest. And that was the plan from the beginning. Remember Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply. And by being fruitful and multiplying, you'll subdue the earth. So the way to subdue the earth is not to go out and force the earth to be subdued. The way to subdue the earth, at least in the kingdom, is to become a single grain of wheat that dies. Let me, let me say it like this, okay. So there's a lot of people who want Christianity without first going through death, burial, and resurrection, a lot of people, we want Christianity. So we want the good morals. We want the good ideas of Christianity. We want the blessings of Christianity. We don't want to go through the bad parts of Christianity. And I'm not saying there's bad parts of Christianity, but the, the parts I'm talking about is persecution and uh, giving up of things that you really like and not going to parties anymore and not sleeping around anymore. You know, it, you can take that as far as you want to do. Um, so we want the good parts of Christianity. We don't want the parts that cause us to have to give up anything. But what Jesus is teaching us is a way that can only be produced through us by us going through death first. And I'm not talking about literal death. I'm talking about a spiritual reality where there's a moment. We, we, this is also called being born again. But where there's a moment where in that moment you make the decision, I'm going to give you everything, death, burial, and then as I give you everything, it's going to give birth in me to a new life, being born again. That new life is resurrected life. So today, as we're going through Easter, as we're in kind of this like crazy season that we're in, I think it's a really awesome moment for us to sit back and start asking ourselves the question, what have we done? What, I mean, what have we done in the church and as believers, and as people of God, here's, here's just my personal answer. What we've done is we've made the Christian experience about two things, okay? Getting out of here, number one. Number two, getting as many people as possible to repeat a prayer, all right? And I know this sounds really familiar, but, uh, but I just need to explain this to you before we read about the death and resurrection, okay? 
That's what we made this whole experience about. There's two issues with those two points. Number one, we've made it about getting out of here. The whole kingdom is made about getting it in here. So, so we have the mindset that we've got to get out of here. He has the mindset, I've got to get this thing in there. So be really careful while he's trying to get the kingdom into the earth that you're not trying to get out of the earth and float away into somewhere else because that's not his plan. His plan, for, his plan for redemption for the cosmos is taking the reality in the heavenly realm and injecting it into the reality of the natural realm. That's why he said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I'm not trying to escape. I'm trying to become the seed that is buried and dies so that my life can begin to produce not just a harvest, but a harvest that contains the same DNA of seed that I have. And the DNA of seed that I have is not Josh's DNA. It's Jesus' DNA. We are co-crucified with Christ. Therefore, we are co-resurrected with Christ. Therefore, we are co-seeded with Christ. Okay? So the garden was the grain of wheat that was to be the blueprint for the globe. He didn't subdue the earth. He put a seed that was subdued in the earth so that as that seed grew, it would become the model the globe would be transformed into. Uh, Check this out. I'm going to finish up Song of Songs today, and then we're going to read a couple more things, and then we're about finished. So Uh, Go to Song of Songs. Let me just read two verses in chapter 6, and then I'm going to read chapter 8, okay? In chapter 6, verse 2 and 3, it says this. Now, remember just what I just said, okay, that the garden was the seed. It was the blueprint for the rest of the globe, right? In Song of Songs 6, starting in verse 2, it says this. My lover, this is the Shulamite, so this represents us talking about Jesus. My lover has gone down into his garden of delight, the place where his spices grow, to feast on those pure in heart. I know we shall find him there. Listen to what she says. He is within me. I am his garden of delight. I have him fully, and now he fully has me. So now the garden is no longer a geographic location. Now the garden is within. Hello. Okay, so listen to this, Song of Songs 8. Uh, We've been going through Song of Songs for a while now. This is the last chapter. So let me just read a little bit of this. If I, this is her talking. If I could only show everyone the passionate desire I have for you, if only I could express it fully, no matter who was watching me, without shame or embarrassment, I long to bring you into my innermost chamber this holy sanctuary you have formed within me. Oh, that I might carry you within me. I would give you the spiced wine of my love, the cup of bliss that we share. We would drink our fill until his left hand cradles my head while his right hand holds me close. We are at rest in his love. Very timely for right now. We are at rest in his love. Promise me, brides-to-be, by the gentle gazelles and delicate deer that shall not disturb my love until he is ready to arise. And then he says, who is this one? Look at her now. 
She arises out of the desert, clinging to her beloved. When I awaken you under the apple tree, as you were fat, excuse me, as you were feasting upon me, I awaken your innermost being with the travail of birth as you longed for more of me. Fasten me upon your heart as a seal of fire forevermore. This living, consuming flame will seal you as my prisoner of love. My passion is stronger than the chains of death and the grave. All consuming as the very flashes of fire from the burning heart of God. My passion, listen to this Easter kind of language right here. My passion is stronger than the chains of death and the grave. They go beyond death and the grave. Place this fierce, unrelenting fire over your whole being. Rivers of pain and persecution will never extinguish this flame. Again, I mean, how, how relative is that to what we're going through right now? Rivers of pain and persecution will never extinguish this flame. Just a little side note. If your flame is being extinguished by what's going on around, it may not be this flame. Because this flame is a flame that cannot be affected by what's going on around you. Okay? So if your flame within, this isn't, this isn't con- condemnation. This isn't talking down about it. This, that's not at all what it is. It's encouraging you to, in this season, to allow him to search your heart and figure out what's burning within you. Because if it's a fire that is easily quenched by what's going on around you, it may not be his fire. It might be one that you have started within you to look like his fire, okay? But when his fire enters into your life, it's placed as a seal over you that becomes a refuge. So let me read this a little bit more. And, uh, and then we'll uh, kind of talk about it. And then I'm going to read one more chapter, um, or excuse me, one more set of scriptures in John. Endless floods will be unable to quench this raging fire that burns within you. Everything will be consumed. It will stop at nothing as you yield everything to this furious fire until it won't even seem to you like a sacrifice anymore. You can get to such a place that you allow yourself to die in the waters of living and true and extravagant life that the kingdom offers you. You allow yourself to be buried in this life extravagant that he offers us that you can get to a point where a sacrifice no longer even feels like a sacrifice anymore. So what used to be a difficult decision to give up now is what freely flows from your life because you become such a carrier of his fire within. So uh, let's continue. Uh, Verse eight says this, my brothers said to me, this is the Shulamite bride talking. My brothers said to me, when I was young, our sister is so immature. What will we do to guard her for her wedding day? The bridegroom king, this is Jesus. We will build a tower of redemption to protect her. Since she is vulnerable, we will enclose her with a wall of cedar boards. And then she says, but now I have grown and become a bride. And my love for him has made me a tower of passion and contentment for my beloved. I am now a firm wall of protection for others, guarding them from harm. This is how he sees me. I am the one who brings him bliss, finding favors, favor in his eyes. My bridegroom king has a vineyard of love made from a multitude of followers. His caretakers of this vineyard have given my beloved their best. Now listen to this right here. 
But as for my own vineyard of love, I give it all to you forever. And I will give double honor to those who serve my beloved and have watched over my soul. Now this is, this is the verse. My beloved, one with me in my garden. How marvelous that my friends, the brides-to-be, now hear your voice in song. Let me hear it again. And this is how Song of Songs ends. It's the bridegroom and the bride in a divine song together. I mean, this is unbelievable. This is Jesus and us singing together. Rare. This is one of the rare, unique pieces in Scripture. Very divine. Listen to this. Arise, my darling. Come quickly, my beloved. Come and be the graceful gazelle with me. Come be like a dancing deer with me. We will dance in the high place of the sky. Yes, on the mountains of fragrant spice. Forever we shall be united as one. Unbelievable ending to that. But what, what is she saying? She's saying that she's gone through this process of transformation to the point where her interior world has now become his garden of delight. And where, as we just read in Song of Songs 8, she has become one with him in that garden. So you start getting the language of Genesis 1, where Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. Again, except this time, like I said before, it's not a geographical location. Now it's an interior reality. Now, why is this so important? It's so important Because to reiterate in Genesis 1, the garden was a blueprint or a seed, if you will. But it was a blueprint that Adam and Eve were to take through their image-bearing capacity and spread throughout the whole of the earth until the whole of the earth was the garden. So the garden wasn't designed to be contained in one geographic location. It was contained in one geographic location until they bore such an image and multiplied that image to the point where it started expanding its borders until one day those borders expanded to the point where the whole of the earth was covered with it. That was the design of it from the beginning. So now we get a really interesting idea that that garden is now within us. So remember... So the garden's plant, it was not designed to stay where it started. Where it started was a blueprint for where it was going. So now that that John 12 uh, grain of wheat starts making sense. Why? Because what is he burying into the ground? He's burying the blueprint of regeneration, new heaven, new earth, the kingdom. He's burying the blueprint for that into the ground. And as he is resurrected, what does it do? It begins to multiply. And those people that are multiplied are not just image bearers. They're image bearers with seeds within them to produce more image bearers. Right? So let's go to John 19 and I'm going to wrap it up here. John 19. And we're going to start at verse 28, I believe. So John 19, verse 28. Okay, hopefully you're there by now. So, verse 28, Jesus knew that his mission was accomplished. This is, he's on the cross at this point. He knew his mission was accomplished and to fulfill the scripture, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. 
A jar of sour wine was sitting nearby, so they soaked a sponge with it and put it on the stalk of hyssop and raised it to his lips. When he had sipped the sour wine, he said, It is finished, my bride. I just, I just saw this. Let me, let me point this out real quick. In uh, this footnote by Dr. Brian Simmons, it says this. The hyssop branch points to the sacrificial death of Jesus. Hyssop is first mentioned in Exodus 12.22 in reference to the application of the lamb's blood upon the doorpost of the homes of the Hebrews the night of Passover. Jesus dies at Passover. He becomes the sacrificial lamb, the final sacrificial lamb for us. Okay, Hyssop was also used for the cleansing of leopards and points to the cleansing of our souls that happened when Jesus was crucified for sinners. So he dies, and when he sipped the sour wine, he said, It is finished, my bride. I've taught on that before. I think I'm going to save that for another day. But when the, the Hebrew word um, that he says right there is not just uh, it is finished. That's one of the meanings. But the other meaning is bride. So literally what he's saying is, is it is finished, my bride. So his last word was the identifier of who he died for. It wasn't just what he did. It is finished. It was who he did it for, bride. Okay. Now let's jump over. Um, and then he bowed his head and surrendered his spirit. Nobody took his spirit. He gave it up freely. Let's jump over to verse, uh, to, excuse me, chapter uh, 20. And I want to start at verse, let's just start at verse, um, where do we want to start? Let's start at verse 20, uh, excuse me, verse 1, chapter 20, verse 1. Very early Sunday morning before sunrise, all right, this is Easter. Mary Magdalene made her way to the tomb, and when she arrived, she discovered that the stone that sealed the entrance to the tomb was moved away. So she went running as fast as she could to go tell Peter and the other disciples, the, the one Jesus loved, excuse me, to go tell Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Of course, it's talking about John. She told them, they've taken the Lord's body from the tomb and we don't know where it is. Then Peter and the other disciple jumped up and ran to the tomb to go see for themselves. They started out together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. That's, that's a really hilarious part of scripture. John is obviously writing about himself. So he threw, he threw this little thing in here where he said, oh, by the way, I beat him to the tomb. All right, sounds, it's very childish, right? Uh, but I just think that's really interesting, kind of funny. Um, he didn't, verse five, he didn't enter the tomb, but peeked in and saw only the linen cloths lying there. Then Peter came behind him and went right into the tomb. He too noticed the linen cloths lying there, but the burial cloth that had been on Jesus's head had been rolled up and placed separate from the other cloths. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, John, went in and after one look, he believed. There's so much here. I'm going to hit a couple of points right here, but with one, the fact that Scripture had to point out that he believed when he saw the empty tomb also means he did not believe before he saw the empty tomb. Very, very, very interesting right there, okay? The other disciple who had reached the tomb, so this is John, at, um, first, he went in, and after one look, he believed. 
For until then, until that moment, they had not understood the scriptures that prophesied that he was destined to rise from the dead. Puzzled, Peter and the other disciple then left and went back to their homes. Like, what is going on? They had no idea. None of this made sense to them. Mary arrived back at the tomb, broken and sobbing. She stooped to peer inside, and through her tears, she saw two angels in dazzling white robes sitting where Jesus' body had been laid, one at the head and one at the feet. So cool. Uh, Dr. Brian Simmons says right here, this becomes a picture of the two golden cherubim, uh, cherubim excuse me, engraved on the mercy seat, peering down into the treasures of grace. So cool. Um, Dear woman, why are you crying, they asked. This is verse 13. Mary answered, they have taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. Then she turned around to leave and there was Jesus standing in front of her, but she didn't realize it was him. He said to her, dear woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Mary answered, thinking he was only the gardener. Sir, now stop right there. Stop right there. I said this last week, but just just to reiterate this, okay? Jesus was so ordinary looking on the outside that people can people didn't believe that could have been the Son of God. So think about it. the resurrected Jesus got confused with a gardener. So that speaks to his normal it speaks to how ordinary his appearance was. And yet, obviously, everything about his world had been transformed. Don't, so don't judge a book by its cover, right? And let me say it like this. Don't focus on the cover, focus on the book. So a lot of, a lot of Christians want to make their cover look really good while their book stinks. Don't focus on the cover. Focus on the book. If you have a good enough book, it doesn't matter what the cover looks like, people will want to read it. That's just a little thing. Take it home. I guess you're already home, so just think on that for a little bit. Uh, Mary answered, thinking he was the only the gardener, sir, If you have taken his body somewhere else, tell me and I will go and Mary, Jesus interrupted her. Turning to face him, she said, Rabbani, which is Aramaic for my teacher. In that moment, when he he says her name, the frequency of his voice speaking her name sets off something in her that says, wait a minute, I know that voice. My teacher, immediately she knows who it is. Jesus cautioned her, Mary, don't hold on to me now for I haven't yet ascended to God my father. This, and this is huge, listen to this. He's not only my father and God, but now he's your father and your God. Now go to my brothers and tell them what I've told you, that I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Then Mary Magdalene left, to inform the disciples of her encounter with Jesus, I have seen the Lord, she told him, and she gave them his message. Man, so Jesus Jesus spent his entire ministry with the knowledge, and I'm gonna wrap this up, spent his entire ministry with the knowledge that he was gonna go through death and resurrection. Just to be clear, death on a cross was not abnormal. In that day and age, a lot of people died the death Jesus did, okay? It, it, was a, it was just a Roman thing. 
So Jesus is handed over to the Romans by who? The Jews, the very people of God. Handed over to the Romans, convinces the Romans to put him to death. They nail him to a cross. He gives up his spirit. They pierce his side. What comes out of his side? Blood and water. What is blood and water? What comes out of a womb when a baby's born, okay? They take his body off of the cross. They put him in a tomb. They seal the tomb. And for three days, nothing's happening. This had to be the three darkest days in history. I mean, they had to be. The Messiah had come doing all this stuff. They were like, finally, the Messiah's here. He's gonna free us from Rome. He's gonna free us from oppression. He's gonna give us our promised land back. You gotta think in Jewish terms, not American terms. I said this last week. You can, you can look at the whole story in hindsight and it's 2020 vision. But if you look at it from their point of view, none of this made sense. None of the prophets prophesied clearly what was gonna happen. That now we, we can look backwards and see, oh, Isaiah meant that, Ezekiel meant that, Hosea meant that, Zechariah meant that, Daniel meant that, etc. We can do that now. But on the front end, none of it made sense. Remember, they were looking for a Messiah like David who was gonna save them from their enemies, which at that point was Rome. When their Messiah that was gonna save them from Rome is being crucified on the cross that other criminals in Rome were crucified on, they're having the thought I guess that wasn't him. Because if that was him, there's no way he'd be going through what he was going through. Why? Because they were thinking in terms of the temporary. And he wasn't thinking in terms of the temporary. Let me say it like this. He wasn't thinking in terms of subduing the earth. He was thinking in terms of generating seeds that when they grew, it would subdue the earth. He was thinking in terms of Genesis 1, not in terms of modern day Jewish culture at that time. And so he dies on a cross. He's put in a tomb. They all go back to normal thinking, well, I guess, I guess we were wrong. They all go back to living life. Mary comes to the tomb. She goes in. She realizes, wait a minute, his body's gone. Remember, she's not thinking about resurrection Because at that point, none of them had any clue that he was going to be resurrected. Looking back, you would think that they had a clue. But leading up to that point, they had no context for believing, no reason for believing other than some uh, parables and some prophetic words that needed translating that Jesus was going to come to the earth, die, and then rise again three days later. So they go, they realize his body isn't in the tomb that they put him in and think somebody has stolen his body. Now, why did they think somebody stole his body? Because they thought because of what Jesus had prophesied and said he was gonna do, that someone had come and stolen his body so that they could say, hey, his body's not in here, he's, he's alive. <clears throat> but none of them actually believed he had actually resurrected, which is why when John and Peter get to the tomb, they walk in, they realize he's not there, and John's like, wait a minute. That dude actually got up. Think, this, this is John, the beloved. One of closest, Peter and John were two of closest, Jesus' closest three <clears throat> disciples. The ones who were with him more than anybody else had no idea that he was actually going to do what he said. And John goes into the tomb, he looks in and says, Oh my goodness. We thought he was going to free us from Rome. 
that guy actually just freed us from a lot more than Rome. And it becomes a picture. Mary encounters Jesus. He still is in his physical body. He's not a ghost floating around. He's in such a physical state that she confuses him for a gardener. And he says, no, Mary. And the frequency coming off of him hits her and says, that, that's the one. That's the one. So two things I want to point out right here, and then we're going to wrap it up. Number one, Jesus's bodily resurrection, not ghostly, bodily resurrection and then ascension becomes the seed for other believers who will one day be bodily resurrected. Let me say it like this. His death and resurrection becomes the model by which we not only become carriers of new creation life, but we become carriers of seeds that can then be transferred into others to where others are carriers of new creation life. We have the same power that that raised Christ Jesus from the dead living in us. We have that same power. However, that power is so powerful that once we begin to um, multiply the image of Jesus that we are carrying, the image of God that we're carrying, when we begin to multiply that, he sends his spirit in them too. It's not our spirit. It's his spirit that through us has been planted within them as a seed that they begin to produce a harvest. And then their harvest begins to have seeds that produces other harvests. And then the whole of the globe is transformed. But here's where we get wrong. Here's where we get caught off guard is when we start to see that the way we subdue the earth is by trying to subdue the earth. That, the reason I'm talking about this today is I know this isn't the typical like, uh, Easter, you know, whatever. But however, I said this last week, the only way to legitimately celebrate Easter is for you to attach yourself with what Jesus did at Easter. It is not a historical event. It's not a historical event. It's an initiating event. So, so when, when, let me, I don't, I don't want to be really cautious. We celebrate, for example, when Clemson won uh, the national championship a couple of years ago, we, we celebrate when Clemson, or in, use any other team, I'm just using Clemson because it's you know, recent, but when they, when they win a championship, we don't just celebrate the fact that that college had been formed at some point. We celebrate the fact that this current team just won the championship, right? Why do we do that? Because the college being formed and every team that went before them were all initiators that led to them winning a championship, right? So at Easter, here's what we do is we celebrate, which we should, by the way, we celebrate what Jesus did, but we stop there. And what Jesus did was simply initiate a process that in every generation is glory to glory to glory to glory to glory, where the, la- the glory of the latter house is much greater than the glory of the former house. And so uh, today, as we're thinking about the Easter story, as we're talking with our families about the Easter story, as we're celebrating and eating and stuff like that, there has to be a moment, I wanna encourage you, because I'm doing this, my family's doing this, there has to be a moment where we stop and we start to think, Jesus did that so that he could put what was in him in me 
so that I could put what's in me in other people around me and so on and so forth until the whole of the globe is covered with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Jesus, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. What was contained within the temple of God exclusively now in Jesus had left the temple of God exclusively and began to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And it's continually doing that through you and I. And so what I wanna do is I wanna pray. I hope today, uh, today I didn't wanna give you just a real encouraging you know, message for everybody to go out and just celebrate Easter and, um, and then go back to normal life. I wanted to give a seed in this message. I wanted this message to be a seed that is planted within you and over time grows such a harvest that your seed begins to plant and produce harvest, etc. And so I wanna pray <clears throat> that today the Lord will begin that process in you and I, and that we're about to see, I believe this coming out of this coronavirus situation, we're about to see the greatest move of God in all of history. And do you know where it's gonna come out of? The greatest season of rest that any of us have been in. I've, I've never in my life, most of you ever, have never been in your life in a season where you're literally forced by the government to rest. So the greatest season of rest in our entire lives, I believe is gonna produce the greatest season of the move of God in our entire lives. And guess what? That season doesn't have an ending. What was the only day in creation that didn't have an ending? The Sabbath day. So maybe right now he's, he's pushing us into an age, into a day that doesn't have an ending and we have to start over again like all the other revivals. Maybe he's pushing us into a day and into an age that actually never ends. So let me pray and then we'll be done. Lord, I thank you for what you did on this day. On, not literally on this day, but on this day that we're celebrating on Easter. I thank you for what you did, that you died a death that I deserved, that everybody watching this deserved, but then you rose again in new creation life that because of your death, all of us deserve. We don't just deserve the death, but you died so that we also now deserve the co-resurrection. And so I pray today we won't stop at the cross, but we'll go through the cross and keep going until that three day later when you rose and walked out of your tomb, fully resurrected, fully alive, and fully victorious over death. I pray that that will be us, that in this season of fear, in the season of chaos, in the season of extreme rest, that there would be such a stillness within our spirit that we'll begin to know you like we never knew you before. So Lord, we honor you. We honor the seed form of what you're giving us right now because in honoring the seed form of what you're giving us right now, we will see the harvest. And so we love you in your name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. For more information, visit dreamcolumbia.com.